the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the Friday program. I can't believe we finished another week. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and you're listening to The Word to Stand On for Life, a radio program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your Bible questions. You know, tonight I'm teaching on Acts chapter 4, and one of the things that's amazing about Peter and why the Lord could use Peter at the very beginning of the church in such a powerful way is because you find that every time Peter opens his mouth in Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 3, and Acts chapter 4, and it continues as long as Peter's on the scene in the book of Acts, every time he opens his mouth, the Bible's coming out. The Word, the Word, the Word. And that's why we have this radio program. We want you to be able to um, have the answers to your questions. We'll do the best that we can, whether they're questions about what we believe as Christians and why, or things going on in the world, or, or even more to the point, things going on in your specific lives. We'll do the best that we can to help you. I really do believe with all of my heart that the Bible has all the answers. Our phone numbers are 340-9585. That's 340-9585. If you're outside the local area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. That's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com or you can send them in via our free Calvary Chapel mobile app. If you're driving in your car, the safest way for you to call hands-free is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the Call Now button, and you'll be connected directly to our studio producer. One more time, 340-9585. I already told you that we're teaching Acts chapter 4 tonight. For us, and it's always a good thing for me, um, Communion Sunday is this Sunday, the first day of October, believe it or not, the first day of October. So we will be having communion this Sunday. I pray that if you go to church and it's your regular communion Sunday, that you will really stand sort of in awe of the privilege it is to come to the Lord's table and celebrate with the very elements that represent how we have life. It's an amazing, amazing thing that we get to do. Also on Sunday, we're having our baptism. It's our delayed summer baptism. We're having our baptism. Uh, if there's anybody in this audience who is a believer and hasn't been baptized of their own free will, we invite you to join us out at uh, uh, Spring Branch areas where the, the river is. If you are interested in coming, and call the church office at 658-8337 and uh, get directions uh, on the location. Uh, we will be out there and we'll start eating right around 3.30, uh, however long it takes us to get there after we finish third service. Uh, and then we'll be in the in the water probably no later than 4.30. So it won't be a late day, but it'll be really, really great day. The Lord will be there and He is always the guest of honor at our baptism. So all of that is coming up this weekend here at Calvary Chapel, wherever it is that you're going and what plans you have, be sure you take Jesus with you 
Uh, he'll make everything that you're going to do a whole lot richer and a whole lot better. Okay, that's all we've got going, so let's go right to some questions that have been sent in. Here is a question from Kirby from our mobile app. Kirby says, understanding 1 Corinthians 11.10 is hard enough, but what constituted a disgrace for a man to wear long hair? Was it in the same context of why women wore long hair as a covering? Would the same inference be applied to a man as we see in verse 4? Kirby, a couple of things about um, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And you're right, it does get a little bit difficult, but that's why it's so important to understand the context of what Paul was writing not only the context, but the problem that he was solving. I've said many times on the show that Corinth was a church that was completely out of control. And they were doing everything wrong. It was just one of those things where everybody's trying to flex their freedom muscles, you know, and, and go counterculture. Uh, and, and so the, the, the issue is not hair. The issue in 1 Corinthians 11 is and always has been authority. That's very important because that's really the context. Christ is the head of the church. Man is head of woman. He sets up this patriarchal um, role in, in, in the church and in the home. That's the only place he does it. Now, in the culture that he was writing to, and this was a cultural reference. This isn't one of those things where... Um, Paul was writing a rule for everybody about hair and head coverings and authority. He's simply saying that that um, in a Roman and Greek culture, it was generally true that men wore their, whore, their hair short. Women in cultures that didn't require coverings had long hair, which sort of served as a, a symbol of their covering, the, the, the authority that they were to be under, the authority of their husbands. Now, Paul's not speaking at all about the length of hair or whether men should have or should not have long hair. He's also not saying that women must not cut their hair or wear it short. That's the miss the point altogether. He's speaking only about a general, not a specific, a general rule. And he proves it in verse 16. Now, before we do that, a couple of things to consider. Uh, really, this is about men and women exchanging roles. You know, Paul, by saying men shouldn't have long hair. He's attacking the effeminate culture. Now remember, in Corinth, there was an idol where that was worshipped, a, a goddess of fertility. And all these obscene things are going on out in the open. There were a thousand male prostitutes and a thousand uh, female prostitutes available for quote-unquote worship all the time. And so what he was saying was that the women who, who were in that culture um, that were the, the shrine prostitutes, they shaved their heads. It was their way of saying that I'm available for your worship. And I say that with, with sort of a, a tongue-in-cheek, but that's what they were calling it. We're going to worship our goddess, and, and I'm available. Well, the other thing that was going on in Corinth was that there were men dressing up like and looking like women. Now, even as I say that, it's clear that things haven't changed very much in 2,000 years. And Paul is talking about the, 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 the inappropriateness of women with shaved heads advertising their promiscuity, their availability, and men with long hair looking effeminate. And that's exactly what he was talking about. So, again, this is about authority. Um, who's the authority in the church? Well, Christ is the head of the church. And, and Jesus himself put himself under authority. God is the head of Christ. That's the Father. Jesus willingly, Philippians 2 says, I mean, uh, Philippians 2 says, uh, willingly subjected himself. Although he was equal with God, he didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped. So God is head of Christ. Christ is the head of man. Man is the head of woman. That's just the roles. And in Corinth, Kirby, they were completely um, destroying um, um, anything that had any semblance of order. So he's not talking about the length of hair. He's talking about being out of order and in specifically being out of order because they were not in authority. You know, in the last verse in that chapter, 
He says, if anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor does the church of God. He's saying this is normal in the church of God. Now, the problem is that we're contentious these 2,000 years later because we haven't learned. Um, Paul is simply saying that this is how the church of Christ is to be run. And if you're contentious on matters like this, then you're just as wrong as the Corinthians were. If you disagree with the important issue of authority in the church, well, Paul's saying that you're wrong, not only wrong, but that you're also in your flesh. So that's what that's all about. So uh, 1 Corinthians 4.10 uh, and, and the end of that has been argued about for a long time. And I've seen a lot of, especially women enslaved by that, afraid to cut their hair. That's not at all what it's talking about. So Kirby, I hope that helps answer your question. I appreciate the question very, very much. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from our mobile app from Emily. You know, he says, uh, please say more about what you mean exactly when you say you're with Jesus all day. Also, how does interacting with Jesus differ than interacting with the Holy Spirit? And in parentheses, she has or does it. Emily, um, what I mean when I talk about just being with Jesus, um, trying to be with him all day. Now, I'm not any more spiritual than anybody else. I recognize that my need for Jesus is so extreme that if I forget about him, if I leave him behind somewhere, then then I'm going to do bad things. I'm going to mess up. In my flesh is nothing good. And after 26 and a half years of walking with Jesus, my flesh is just as ugly as it was before I got saved. The difference is that when I'm with Jesus, I'm walking in the spirit. I'm not walking according to the flesh. When I'm walking with Jesus, I want the things he wants. When I'm with Jesus, then I, I think the things that he thinks. You see, he's the power. He's the key. Now, is no different in interacting with the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit is testifying of Jesus. When the Holy Spirit convicts our heart of something, he leads us to the person of Jesus Christ for forgiveness. If we confess our sins, First John says, he's faithful and just to forgive us and purify us from all unrighteousness. But the more important application here, Emily, when I say that I'm with Jesus all day or trying to be with Jesus all day, it means that I am aware of his presence. Not only am I aware of his presence, but I'm talking to him, interacting with him. You know, the fact that he's invisible in, this, in, the, in the person of the Holy Spirit doesn't mean that he's not there. And so what I set out to do very, very early in my Christian walk was to practice being in his presence. When I am with Jesus, I don't say bad things. When I'm with Jesus, if bad thoughts come into my mind, then I'm able to take those thoughts captive and make them obedient to Christ. If I'm with Jesus, instead of looking at somebody who offends me and, and, and getting angry, well, then what I'm going to do is look at them through his eyes and love them. It doesn't mean I'm going to like what they did, but I'm still going to be able to love them. When I'm with Jesus, it means it's impossible for me not to forgive somebody who's hurt me or sinned against me. Now, if I'm not with Jesus, then I'm going to be like everybody else. So the battle here, Emily, is to be with Jesus all the time. If I can be with Jesus, I know I'm on safe ground. The problem is that because, again, he's invisible, because we don't hear his voice audibly, we forget that he's right there with us. And you know, whether it's language or the places you go or the people you see, you're not going to do the same things if Jesus is there and you know he's there than you are when you're not aware. It's just that simple. My flesh wants to do bad things when Jesus is there. His presence overcomes my flesh. So that's what I mean exactly. Now, Emily, let me say one other thing here. I get up in the morning. And the first thing I do is hone in on Jesus. Uh, mornings are not a good thing, good time for me. I wake up sore. I, I always jokingly, but realistically, say the first word out of my mouth every morning is, ouch, you should have heard me this morning. Poor Paula, I, I must have said it three or four times. 
Um, your body hurts. You're getting up. You're groggy. You know, Paula, bless her heart. She gets up and she's ready to go and praise the Lord, praise the Lord. I just get up and it's just like, wow, what a night. And I have to start honing in on Jesus right then and right there. That's when I begin talking to him. That's when I begin surrendering to his will. Every morning when I go out to walk, the first thing I say is, Jesus, today, of my own free will, I choose to serve you. Not by might, nor by power, but by your spirit, in your name, and for your glory. And then I say, but I can't do that on my own. I don't even want to do that on my own. So I offer my hand, and I actually put my hand out, Emily. I offer my hand to Jesus, and then I take his hand by faith, and I tell him from Genesis 32, I will not let go until you bless me. Then for me, I do the same thing. I put my left hand out because Paul and I are one flesh. I say, I take Paula's hand. We're one flesh. We will not let go until you bless us. Now, the reason I do that, for me, Emily, it kickstarts. And I've been doing it virtually every day that I've been saved. It sort of kickstarts this whole process of remembering that I'm with Jesus, that I have no rights. I can't be offended that the people of God are the objects of his love, so they're the objects of my love. I have to view things that happen throughout that day, whether they're things that happen to me personally and individually or, or things that happen um, in the world that we live in. I have to view all of those things through his lens, through his heart. And I've just gotten in the habit of talking to him all day long, all day long. And I'm personally never more aware of my need to be with him than when I'm considering something that isn't pleasing to God. When I'm tempted by sin or when I'm tempted to get angry or to judge somebody or to, to be short because well, by now you should get it kind of thing. I always have to remember that Jesus is there. And if he's there with me, I know I'm going to be okay. Truth is, if I'm not with him where he is. I'm equally sure I'm not going to be okay. So that's what I mean by it, Emily. I hope that makes sense to you. You know, uh, I've got a phone call that I'll go to in just one moment, so please be patient just for another moment. Um, Brenda from Cibolo. Um You know, when I started saying just be with Jesus, I never realized how much confusion that would cause. I, 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 For me, it's just the most natural, the, the simplest thing ever. And so people say, well, what do you mean? And I say, well, he's there. Act like he's there. And I never intended for that to be confusing. I didn't ever intend to sound like I'm being more spiritual than anybody else. The truth is, I simply am more aware of my absolute desperate need to be with him every minute of every day. And I'm just like anybody else. There are times I forget. There's times other things occupy my mind. But I don't want those things to go on and on and on. So I try to catch myself as quickly. If I would go a half hour and not be thinking about Jesus being right here where I am, um, that would be distressing to me. So I'm always aware of his presence, at least almost always aware of his presence. And when, when I've forgotten for a few minutes or even a, a, a more than a few minutes... I want to rush back into his presence. And usually the way I do that is saying, I'm so sorry, Jesus. I didn't mean to ignore you. He always says, it's okay. He's just happy to be back. So I hope that makes some sense. Let's go to Cibola now and talk with Brenda. Brenda, thanks for being patient. You're on the air. Hi, um, Pastor Ron. I have a question about Romans 16 and 7. There's a reference there to Junia and, uh, and some readings. She's referred to by some as a female, and that they're referring to her as a female apostle. I uh, just wanted your comments on that, and if so, what is your thoughts about her as a female apostle, if you oh, agree that's oh. how they're referring to her? Yeah, I Junia. can do that. Thank you. Thank you, Thank Brenda. You, you know, uh, for for sure. Now, there there's people who try to parse this and say, well, you know, the name Hunius in other translations, it's Hunios, uh, a, a male um, um, term, uh, gender, uh, male gender um, reference. Uh, I am 100% convinced that Hunius is a woman. 
without any question. But it doesn't say that she was an apostle. You have to read this carefully. We read something and we kind of skip over it. Uh, it says, Greed and Deronicus and Hunius. And by the way, they were Paul's relatives. I wonder how long they'd been praying for the apostle Paul when he was Saul of Tarsus. You never know who you're praying for. This is my relatives who have been in prison with me. We know that they stood the test of persecution because they endured prison even while Paul was there. And here's what he says. They are outstanding among the apostles. And they were in Christ before I was. They were saved before he was. But that they are outstanding among the apostles doesn't mean that they're apostles at all. It just means that all of the apostles considered them as outstanding servants of Jesus Christ. Men and women who'd stood the test of time, they'd stood the test of persecution, and it's almost like getting a a, 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 a medal of some sort for, for being a really, really faithful believer. These were people, one male, Andronicus, Honius, one female, who could be depended upon, they could be counted on, so that they were outstanding among the apostles, Brenda, is not the same thing as saying they were outstanding apostles. So I hope that makes sense. These were men, one man and one woman who was known throughout the early church world, and the apostles validated their ministry. If you ever talk to Peter or John or, or any of the others about these two, they'd say, oh, yes, so faithful, so faithful. They have been tried, they have been tested, and they've been proven true. So that's what it means. It doesn't mean that they were apostles. That's very, very important. In fact, there is a move, Brenda, among uh, churches that really sort of have thrown the Bible away. Um, uh, and, and they've used uh, Hunius as an example for validating, uh, ordaining women into pastoral positions. Well, if Hunius was a woman and she could be uh, an apostle, then, then I think God's okay with me being a pastor. He's not. That is not what the passage of Scripture in Romans 16 says. One other comment on Romans 16. We read through these greetings and farewells so quickly when we get to the Bible. Don't read quickly through this one. Don't read quickly through this one. This is a treasure chest, a treasure for us. There is such great information. We hear, we learn so much about the makeup of the church. We see uh, um, slaves who, who um, had honored the Lord in their service to him. They were well known among other people. Um, we see people that came from every background. Uh, my point is, there was no segregation in the early church. The doors were open to any and all who would come. So, um, Romans 16, do a little bit of homework. Wow, this is a great, great, great chapter. Brenda, I hope that answers your question. Thank you very, very much. 340-9585, here is a question from our email inbox from Dan. My friend truly feels like demons are messing around with him, claiming he wakes up and sees eyes staring at him or wakes up and feels a presence or sometimes feel like he's being choked in his sleep. He's saved and he knows he can't be demon-possessed, but he swears that spiritual forces are messing with him. Do demons do stuff like that? Seems awfully strange to me, especially since he's saved. Well, Dan, demons are strange and they do mess with us. Now, um, I've had a few incidents where I felt like there was pressing on my chest or I felt like there was pressure. Uh, I felt the presence of evil around me many, many, many times. Um, demons are always there. We shouldn't be surprised by that. Um, so, uh, you know, I don't know about seeing eyes staring at him. Uh, because the, the the presence of the demon is almost always invisible. They're, they're spirit beings. Um, but but for sure, for absolute certain, there's uh, a presence of evil they have. Um, I have a pastor friend who who uh, uh, claims that they manifest themselves to him with these horrible, terrible smells, and he knows that they're there. Well, the whole point is that we don't need to be afraid of them. They can't do anything to us without going through God first. 
And Jesus is there. Greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. So we have to understand that. But we should never be surprised that spiritual forces, demons, are messing with us. That's why Paul tells us to dress in the full armor of God. Uh, I, I would wonder, Dan, what type of church your friend goes through. Um, sometimes the power of suggestion is so so strong that if if he goes to a sort of a faith church or name it and claim it church, they're always shouting at the devil and binding him, telling him about um, how the, the demons are going to persecute you and they're going to be around and there's nonsensical stories about casting demons out of people and out of rooms and out of houses. I don't think that has any um, um, validity as, as being true. But please don't ever be caught off guard. Demons are always going to be messing with you because you're doing the work that God wants you to do and they don't want that work being done. The enemy is relentless. He is ruthless. He is without mercy and he's going to mess with your friend as much as he possibly can. Um, Jesus is stronger and that's when he needs to rest in the person and the protection of Jesus Christ. Again, greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. So, Dan, I hope that answers your question. Um, Pray for your friend. Hey, you've been listening to The Word to Stand On for Life. We've got 30 minutes left in the week, 340-9585 for your live calls and questions or 877-630-KSLR. We'll be back on the other side of the break in two minutes. See you then. the word to stand on for life we're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR now here's pastor ron arbaugh welcome back to the last half hour of the week i like saying that because i always feel like i accomplished something when i make it through a week 340-9585 for your live calls and questions we'll get right back to the questions here's a question from our mobile app uh anonymously the question is, in Genesis 4.26, when it says, Then men began to call upon the name of the Lord, what does that mean? Does that just mean that they began to have a relationship with the Lord, or they began to live righteous lives like Enoch or Noah? Um, anonymous, sort of yes and no. Now, let me explain what I mean. Now, here's the, the sort of the... the, the um, context of this. Uh, In verse 25 of Genesis 4, this is after uh, Abel has been killed by Cain. Uh, Cain has been marked and sent uh, on his own. Um, And then it says in verse 25, Adam lay with his wife again and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth. Now this is the godly offspring here. Saying, God has granted me another child in place of Abel since Cain killed him. Now, Uh, Verse 26 then says, Seth also had a son, and he named him Enosh. Now, um, what we've got going on here is, and then it says they began to call on the name of the Lord again. Um, At that time, men began to call on the name of the Lord. Not only did they see a replacement for Abel, but then they saw a godly grandson. So this is Adam and Eve just celebrating um, God's goodness to them. Um, God demonstrated his goodness for them, for us, his kindness toward us, um, by, by, by always having a godly line. That's one of the things we have to remember. God talks about a remnant in the Old Testament all the time. No matter how far people had fallen from God, there was always a remnant. And Seth, taking Abel's place, carries on this remnant. Now, I think what we have here isn't, it's not Enoch or it's not Noah, it's not like that. Um, but this is a time when, after Cain left and people began to spread around, uh, people began doing what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. They began doing what seemed right in their own eyes. It will never stop. It goes on even today. And in this particular case, I think Seth's birth and then his grandson's birth was a time when there was a revival. Probably we could call this the first revival in history. Because man could see the goodness of God 
in his willingness to replenish and restore mankind. You know, the curse had fallen. Men were, were, were now dying and going to die. But they saw God's provision as proof that God's plan wouldn't be ruined by that sin. No longer would they be consumed by what had been lost. Now man could look forward to that which lay ahead. Seth's birth and that of his grandson started a new godly line of humans. And that's when man could now worship God, give thanks to God, and once again walk in fellowship with him. At this very moment, war was declared on sin in the world. Can you imagine when Cain killed Abel? Now we know that Satan was responsible for that. Sin is crouching at your door and desires to master you, God said to Cain. And Cain didn't listen. But now the godly line is vanquished. Suddenly there's Adam and Eve having another child. And then later that child having a child of his own. You know, this revival began with a new birth. It shouldn't surprise any of us that Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born again. You see, all real life in Christ begins with being born the second time in Christ. I think this is what this is a symbol of. Um, now, we know, though, that this wasn't anything more than just a, a revival, because um, men began to walk in evil again. We can go to Enoch uh, before even Noah. And the Bible says that every inclination of man's heart was only evil all the time. And when it was only evil all the time, what that meant um, is that they began rebelling against God, doing their own thing. And whenever we begin to do our own thing, then, then the relationships deteriorate, of course, and, and so too does the condition of the world. Uh, and that's why God sent Enoch a message with the birth of his son, Methuselah. Enoch realized that was a threat of judgment. Enoch was 65 years old when he had Methuselah, or when he got the message. And for 65 years, he was like everybody else. And then it says after that, for 300 years, Enoch walked with God, and then God took him away. And from there, it just got worse, and that's why the flood was the, the result, or the judgment of the flood was the result of man's rebellion against God. So um, it, it wasn't a relationship in the sense synonymous that we consider relationship with God. Um, it was that some began to seek the Lord and they would begin to pursue righteous living. So just the beginning and they, again it didn't last for very long. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. We just got a call in or a question in from our email inbox from Lewis. Said Cain was the first child of Adam and Eve. Abel was the second. Two sons. After Cain kills Abel, he complains to God that whoever finds me will kill me. But there was no one else at that time besides their parents, right? So what was he worried about? What people? Then at the end of chapter 4, it's done to Cain as a wife. How? When did she enter the picture? And if she's a sister, where was she born? And where was she when Cain killed Abel? A couple of things, Lewis. One, we don't have the written record of all of the sons and daughters of Cain, of uh, Adam and Eve. Just those that really pertain to the uh, the gospel message, the, the, the story about Jesus. So we, we've got the story of Cain and Abel because um, Cain was... The, the, the first murderer, uh, Abel, whose sacrifice was received by God, accepted by God, uh, was a righteous man. Cain was not. And so when he complains to God that whoever finds will kill me, that was after God pronounced his judgment. He said, my punishment is more than I can bear. Whoever finds me is going to kill me. And God said, no, I've sealed you. Now, remember, the earth was being replenished. The other thing that we don't know as we read the Genesis account is how many years. We don't know how old Cain and Abel were when Genesis chapter 4 comes. They could have been 100 years. They could have been 500 years. We don't know that because we're not given that information. And the command to be fruitful and multiply was such that it was necessary for uh, brothers and sisters to marry, uh, to, to have children, 
then cousins and, and nieces and nephews. And I mean, everybody came from the same stock, so we're all related in some way. Remember, it wasn't a sin. It's not incest until God says now because of the sin, because of the curse, um, sleeping with a, 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 a sibling or a mother with a son or a father with a daughter, then he called it sin. That's when incest became sinful, not before. We also need to remember, Lewis, that the effects of sin were very, very slow. Remember, in in that first group of people after the fall, uh, some of them lived to be well over 900 years old. You can imagine how many people could be um, um, created in that particular time just through the normal process of, of, of being born and being raised and finding somebody getting married. So it wasn't sin like we would consider incest a sin. So uh, we don't have all of the names. Um, the, the, the earth in a near-perfect environment would have ra- rapidly populated. So there would have been people everywhere. That's who Cain was worried about. And the people after the fall would have scattered into different areas. And that's why Cain was sent out. So um, Cain has a wife. Um, she entered the picture. We don't know. We don't know uh, who she was. Um, but again, we have to remember that there would be, um, and I hesitate even using a number, but multitudes, myriads of people on an earth populated over a period of a thousand years. If Adam lived to be 900 years old, imagine how many sons and daughters and grandsons he could have had. We just don't have the whole record. So if you're reading Genesis looking for all of the holes to be filled and we don't have them, we only have those that pertain to the story that we've been given, the story about Jesus. Thanks very much, Lewis. You always ask such great questions. Let's go to Daniel calling from San Antonio. Daniel, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hey, Ron. I'll ask you a few questions. Uh, I was reading in uh, Corinthians the second chapter where it says that none of the rulers of this age understood it for if they had they would not have crucified the lord of glory um i'm wondering is he talking about the forces of evil like that they didn't like had they known god's plan about jesus they wouldn't have crucified him because like i've always thought to myself like you know like if you know if they knew what they what was going to happen i don't think they would have like the devil would have really wanted to crucify him, you know, knowing that he would be defeated. I mean, I don't know if that if, that, if that's referring to that or when he says uh, well, none of the, of the rulers of this age understood it. It's in Second uh, Corinthians, uh, I think it's chapter two, verses like six to eight or something like that. But um, my other question is um, kind of. Uh, the people before the time of the flood, since there was no law, like what happened to them? Like we you know after I know they died in the flood, but you know that God hold their sins against them, or did they? And then, then my third question is, um, when you were, earlier you were talking about uh, how God says He says sin is crouching at your door, like I've always wondered, like sometimes when I hear the the Bible talk about sin, like is it like a sin, like a force or something that? Or, you know, is it just the, the mm-hmm. nature that that's wanting to do wrong? Or, you know what I mean? Like, I, I don't know. Can you explain that? And I'll take your answer over the radio. I can, Daniel. Thank you. Very well thought out questions. Um, let, let me take them in reverse order. That, that sin is crouching at your door. Yes, sin is a force, our flesh. I always talk about a, a conspiracy. The, the devil, the world, and my flesh is trying to destroy me. And so it, it's a real force. Now, the, the power behind that force, of course, is Satan. And so when God said that to Cain, God was trying to get Cain to understand the devil's intent. You know, this is off your question a little bit, Daniel, but you, you remember when Jesus allowed the, the demons that were cast from legion to go into the, the, the herd of pigs? And they ran off the cliff and and uh, ran to big suicide. Um, um, you know, Jesus was giving that a, them a demonstration of the intent of the enemy in our lives. 
Everybody knew that Legion was demon-possessed. When those demons went out and all those pigs killed themselves, that was Jesus' way of saying, that's what the devil is trying to do to you. So uh, he's always trying to kill us. Make no mistake. Now, that answers a little bit your other question in the sense that um, when they crucified Jesus, uh, the only thing Satan can do is to kill and destroy. You know, we, we, we have a tendency, Satan is brilliant, Satan is a great student of human psychology, uh, he's always lurking around, but, but, but sin is insane, Satan is insane. He knows God, he saw God, he was created this magnificent creature by God. And yet he thought he could overcome God. He still thinks he can overcome God, that's how insane sin is. And so when it's talking in Second, First Corinthians, rather, about none of the rulers of this age understood, uh, they didn't understand um, that, that God had a secret wisdom, a wisdom that has been hidden, and that God destined for our glory before time began. If they would have got that, if they would have understood the goodness of God and his intent toward us, not only would they have not crucified Jesus, they would have celebrated his arrival. And what he's saying, it doesn't mean they're not culpable, they're not accountable. It just means in that First Corinthians passage that, that they didn't care. They didn't understand the truth. Now, in the same way, Daniel, we've got people that we can tell about Jesus, and they can nod yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and even in, in the lives of many professing Christians, they're, they're living sinful lives, willfully sinful lives, claiming to be Christ. They don't understand they may have intellectual assent to the person of Jesus, but they don't understand because they're crucifying them all over again when they're, they're, they're willfully sinning. So what he's talking about, not the rulers behind the scenes, not the spiritual rulers in heavenly places, but he's talking about those who are responsible for the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus Christ. And um, this whole passage is intended to... to um, um, encourage us to declare this message of wisdom um, not the wisdom of the world but but among mature believers uh, we're to tell them these truths they won't get it many won't but some will and that's what we have to understand verse 10 of 1 Corinthians 2 says God has revealed it to us by his spirit the spirit searches all things even the deep things of God so that's really important for us to understand so he's talking about the, the, the Annas and Caiaphas, Pilate, and all of the others who were responsible for Jesus' death in the time that he lived, including those that were rejecting and rebelling against God at the same time. Daniel, about those who were caught in the flood, yes, their sins were held accountable. Their sins, uh, or they were held accountable for their sins because their sins were the reason for judgment. You know, there's a, there's a, a lot of of... of really, really useful language about the behavior of the world in the time of Noah. Every inclination. Think about that. Every inclination of man was only evil all the time. Every, only, all. And they knew they were wrong. They knew it was sin. And it was so bad that God sent this flood of judgment and destroyed everybody but Noah and his family, eight people involved. And yes, their judgment was the flood. It's appointed unto man to die once and then face judgment. They were judged and, and the people that rejected Jesus, that rejected the promises of God, the Word of God. Now remember, Noah was a preacher of righteousness. So they heard, they saw his faithfulness, so he was a witness, not only with his mouth, but with his behavior. He pleaded with people to save themselves. But they didn't want to. They had every opportunity to get in that ark. And they chose not to. It's amazing. God brought the animals to Noah. The animals were a lot smarter than the people were. Because the animals that God brought to the ark got on board. So yes, they were judged. They will spend eternity in judgment. Um, they will be thrown in the lake of fire uh, after the thousand-year reign of Christ on earth. So Daniel, thanks for the questions. I appreciate them very, very much. 
340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from Randall. Interesting question for me, Randall. He says, what are your biggest concerns about the future of the church and also about your specific church? Randall, I have a lot of concerns about the church. Now, I don't want to sound um, alarmist here because uh, that's not my intent. I know that the gates of hell will not prevail against God's church. But here's my biggest concern. We're in the last days, and it doesn't seem like the church recognizes it. I mean, all we have to do is go back to our last election cycle and see that the church, so much of the professing evangelical church, instead of proclaiming Christ, they were proclaiming a Republican Party. It's like we just don't get it. My concern is that we've we've lost sight of the Word of God. Tonight I have the privilege of preaching from Acts chapter 4. Our message is there's no other name under heaven by which men must be saved. And so much of the church is saying, no, if you vote for this candidate, everything's going to be fine. Our nation will be, 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 be resolved. Uh, th- that's just not true. And my concern is about focus. My concern is about commitment. My concern as sin invades the current church culture. My concern is that we're refusing to pursue holiness. When the Bible says without holiness, no one will see the Lord. It's like we're being contaminated by the sin in this world. And I am, Randall, very concerned that a gospel that isn't a gospel at all means good news. All the false teaching, all the false hope, all the marketing we do. My concern is that we've lost Jesus. You know, in Jesus' seven letters to the churches, we're told that he's among, walking among the seven candlesticks as the churches. And I'm afraid there's a lot of churches that won't open the door for him. And I am really, really, really concerned because so many churches are being swept up into the this, these culture wars that we have. Instead of proclaiming Christ and Him crucified, Paul says, that's the only message I have. And Randall, just for me personally, that's all the Lord's ever asked me to do, to proclaim His message. He never said it was my message. It's his message. He never gave me the, 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 the freedom to adapt or to adjust or to get creative. I haven't said a new or original thing in 22 and a half years being the pastor here. I'm just regurgitating his story over and over and over and I think we've lost that now again God knows those who are his he won't be mocked I think a lot of people are mocking him now so that's my biggest concern we've just lost the word of God I think about Josiah the boy king they were cleaning out the mess that was left from the previous kings who were all wicked and evil And they came across, in the house of God, the book of the law. And they started reading it. And a revival occurred under Josiah. Took some time, but it occurred. And I think we've lost the word of God in the house of God. In this time that we live in, and we're paying the price. Uh, About my church personally, Randall, um... You know, as uh, I'm getting older and, and um, you know, my, my concern is that we finish well. Um, I, I never wanted to just be a church. I didn't want to be a place where people go. I didn't want to be a place where as long as the seats were filled, everybody was content. I want to keep pushing people out on that ledge with Jesus, taking risks, walking by faith. Um, and, and so as I get older, that's my concern. I, I already, Pastor Ken is going to take over for me one day when the Lord decides, not me and not Ken, but uh, I have great hope for this church, 
under his direction when that time comes. But I want to finish well. I want our church to rightly represent Christ. And I think, and I hope this doesn't sound like I'm patting myself on the back because I'm not. But I want this church to be known as a church that loves, a church that worships, a church that honors His Word, a church where sinners are comfortable to come but not comfortable to remain sinners. I don't want to go through the motions is I guess what I'm saying. And your word concerns, Randall describes a whole bunch of my prayer life. I don't want... Jesus to say to me what Paul said to the Galatians, oh foolish Galatians what started in the spirit are you now going to finish in the flesh and I think there's just a lot of churches finishing in the flesh looks good Laodicea you say you're rich that you need nothing but I say to you you're blind, poor, pitiful naked in other words, they were kidding themselves. I don't, I don't want to be that. I, I want to be one who goes to heaven and sees a smile on Jesus' face and one look at me and say, nice try, Ron. So that's the concerns about my church. I hope that answers your question. We don't have any time for another call. Let me see if I have a quick question. Wait, what, about a minute? minute and a half? Um... Here's one I can do, anonymous. What do you think about a Christian wanting to be an actress? It's the only thing I've ever wanted to be. God bless you. Be an actress. Be a good one. I don't know why we think that Christians can't be doctors and lawyers and actors and actresses. So stand with Jesus, stand for Jesus, but you pursue being an actress with all of your heart. Be the best actress you can. Just never forget that Jesus is there can be really tempting because you'll be in the midst of a lot of evil. But that's where Jesus needs you. So God bless you. You do it. Hey, thanks for a really great week. I appreciate the phone calls and the questions. You've been listening to the words of Stand On For Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh, and Lord willing, I'll be back Monday at 4 o'clock on AM 630. The Word. See you then. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.